0: I want you to turn with me to this little book from the prophet Haggai. I know every one of you have been reading Haggai all year long, right? It's two chapters long. It's this tiny little book in the Bible. And it's this book in the Bible that reminds me of those times where you run face first into reality. And reality is not what you want. But reality is what you get. And it's there God meets us. The title of the message today is A Broken Grace. Um, I think we could have given this a number of different titles. We could have given it um, Not What We Expect or God Is Not Often the Kind of God that we Expect or those kind of things. But uh, let me tell you a story. 32 33 years ago it was the first vacation we really ever had in our first pastorate. We we're pastoring in this little village in upstate New York and you know I married a woman who's from San Francisco. Big difference between San Francisco and a village of 2400 people. And we needed to get her out of there and get her back home and and so we went to San Francisco in the in the winter, the early late fall of 1989. And we got there in 1989 towards the end of that year. And just two months before, maybe you recall, there was an earthquake that rocked San Francisco. My father-in-law described it this way. He said that their floor was rolling like this. And he could see the floor rolling. And when the, when the building, the house stopped shaking, it all of a sudden was as flat as can be and there wasn't a crack in the, in the house. The foundation, it was, a, it was surreal, he said. My brother-in-law was at the World Series game when part of the stadium cracked open, and he looked out, and he could see outside. It was crazy. And so we went there, and we wanted to see firsthand what had happened, so we went downtown San Francisco like we had gone so many different times before and, and since, really. And we went downtown, and we saw the site. When we saw it, it was eerie buildings that we knew existed in one certain location were no longer there and it wasn't that they were knocked down it was that they sunk into the ground and other buildings that's where we saw it had big red x's painted on them condemned homes businesses destroyed one building after another This little prophet, Haggai, is like Habakkuk, but 80 years, 90 years later. He walks among the ruins of a world turned upside down. Now, Habakkuk, who who we looked at last week, he lived in the midst of exile, like entering into and in the midst of exile. This little prophet, Haggai, he's returning home now to Jerusalem. He's permitted to go home. He's a post, what we call a post-exilic prophet. And he finds home is a former shell of itself. And at the center of all that is broken down is a broken down temple, far from what anyone he especially remembered or hoped it to be, Because all he sees is the burned out shell of a building and what now is an overgrown attempt of people trying to rebuild it. What was once there in all its glory is now gone. Because just 60 years before, history painted a big red X on the temple and destroyed it. It was like a condemned building in San Francisco in the autumn of 1989. But now it was mid to late autumn, about 520 B.C., give or take. What happened to the people is that disappointment swallowed the people like a suffocating blanket. It's about 15 years or so after some have tried to rebuild the temple and then they gave up. It was an initial foray into it. The landscape of life had forever been altered for these people. I wonder, maybe like after a pandemic. Listen to the words of the prophet. This is the word of the Lord today. Haggai chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? In other words, do you remember what it used to be like Do you remember the good old days? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? That's the word of the Lord today. Thanks be to God. (laughs) You see, it's the image of destruction that was left behind by the Babylonians in a disheartened attempt by others to rebuild it, that he now sees. But now the people have an opportunity under a, a new regime, a new country, a new ruler, the Persian king Darius, who has given them the green light to go home. said, yes, go home and rebuild and find your place back home. And I'm sure that their hearts beat with anticipation, but, but what do they find? A message paraphrase says it this way, Is there anyone here who saw the temple the way it used to be in all glorious? And what do you see now? Not much. Huh? Right? In fact, it was devastating. Their dreams had been ransacked. And sometimes when we run into reality and it's not what we want it to be, it's not what we thought it should be, It can be disheartening. It can be discouraging. It can be disappointing. And and, and that can rob the vitality of life from us. We can talk about God all we want. But sometimes we need to run into the reality of the loss of the vitality because of the reality that's hit us square in the face. And that's what's happening to these people. Disappointments, devastations, things that disappoint us. They can rob vitality. Now, some disappointments in life, for example, some disappointments in life, like the Yankees losing a game. My case, right? Thank you, Shirley. I knew I'd get some response from you. That's good. Now, those kind of disappointments, they're passing. We have all kinds of disappointments that just pass through our lives and we just move on. But others... Others, like the rejection of the faith by a child, or the the death, the sudden death of a friend or family member, or the failure of church to live up to its witness in the world, Those, those change the landscape of life. I want you to think right now of a disappointment that's come into your life or someone you know, and it's altered the landscape of life when people say to me life's not fair i think sometimes they want me to say you're right life's not fair but what i really want to say is well that's right life's not fair i don't know there's anywhere in the bible anyway that says you know life is fair thus saith the lord I kind of wish God would say that in some days, but it's not that way. Some things in life change the landscape of life in a way we don't want them to be. These people look at the new temple they have, and it's not even a shadow of what they had. And it's not the way it was supposed to be. And it's not what they were anticipating. And I'm sure some looked at it and said, I didn't sign up for that. And Sometimes in life, we look at life. and We look at life, or we look at marriage, or we look at family, or we look at work, or we look at whatever, and we go, I didn't sign up for that, God. Or that pain comes our way, or that diagnosis comes our way, or that discouragement comes our way, or... I didn't sign up for that, God. That wasn't in the fine print when I said I was going to follow you. And I think there was probably those kind of people that were there. Not only was the temple a shell of what it was, not only were the people disoriented by it all, but this was not the God that they needed, or so they thought, or the God that they wanted. So I think there are a couple lessons we can take away from the prophet and from these people in this time in history. The first is this. God's meeting place is not always where we expect it to be. And maybe I, 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 I I wrote another way of saying that. Maybe this is another way. It is not where God meets us that matters, but the fact that he meets us. Period. Right? It's not me focusing on, God, meet me here. It's not that which should be my focus, just the fact that he meets me. He meets us. Haggai wanted them to understand that flag of truth, that God meets us where we are, not where we wish we could be. Even and especially in our loss of expectations like a ravaged temple in 520 B.C., or a ransacked in world filled with uncertainty in the 21st century. Because that is true, because that is true, we are to live faithfully in the midst of the uncertainty. What is the response to uncertainty for who, those who dare to follow Jesus Christ? To live faithfully in the midst of uncertainty. Because that is true, as we live faithfully. we must remember God meets us where we are. There are a number of themes in Haggai in that when you read look at the book of Haggai in your Bible, it's like packed. It's condensed. Other prophets have like poetic prose, and Haggai's like boom. packed in there. But one of the key Lessons as God meets us where we are, chapter two, verse four. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Three times he says that, be strong, be strong. It, it quite literally means have the ability to accomplish what is intended. It implies this element of resolve. It reminds me that that this life of faith, this life with the presence of God, doesn't have a switch called automatic pilot that I just hit and then I just cruise. It reminds me that faith involves resolve. But that's also directly connected to this reality. We find he he goes on, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, so do not fear. My spirit is with you. I am with you. Another prophet said it this way. You know these words. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. What a great picture of our God. What does that look like when you run into that bit of reality that you don't want? Where Henri Nouwen said this, I've tried so hard in the past to heal myself from my complaints and failed and failed and failed until I came to the edge of complete emotional collapse and even physical exhaustion. I can only be healed from above from where God reaches down. God meets us and that's what we need. That's what I need. Notice what I didn't say, what I didn't say, I didn't say. God meets us and I get the outcome I want. God meets us and It all ties up in a nice little bow. God God meets us and they lived happily forever after. That's not biblical. God meets us. And what his presence does is alters everything. That's the second lesson of Haggai. And it's this. The God who meets us is the God we follow who makes all things new. The God who, another word for it, redeems things. Do you you know that's the God we serve? I appreciated the way Jamie led us at the start of the service today talking about the redemption we find, which we're going to celebrate in in a moment in the table. Because that's our God. God. God is a God of redemption, and God will redeem what we give to him. He's a God of redemption. So when when I cry out to him, when I go to him, when this God meets me, I can't go conditionally expecting a specific outcome to turn my way in my circumstances. Even as I say that, I want to reel those words back in because I often want it not to be that way, (laughs) right, Amen? amen? But we have a God who actually does make all things new. Those things may not look as we think they ought to be new. But listen very closely to verses 6 and 9 of Haggai 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Hear that. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, it's all mine, Verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You know, there's that world-famous theologian and philosopher named Yogi Berra who said these words. He said a lot of strange things, but he said it ain't over till it's over. You know, I think that's a Christian statement. It ain't over till it's over. I think we need to make that a mantra for us in a world of disappointments. In a world of face-planting realities. It ain't over till it's over. God is not done yet. God meets us where we least expect us, Him to. And the God who meets us is the God who's not done yet. The God who redeems all things. Boy, if I could just internalize that message into every fiber of my day, that changes everything. In the deepest discouragements, in the deepest... Brokenness in the deepest disappointments. It sounds like just a, some good religious counsel. But we follow the God who redeems. And therefore, it ain't over till it's over. The words for the people are not just, this will be restored But he says this will be better than it was before. This will be better than what you could have possibly dreamed. We hear Paul say that in Ephesians chapter 3 in that great prayer. He says, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory what God can do with his power in us. God will redeem what you will see. He will redeem this disappointment. It may not be the way you would do it or when you think it should be done. The reality is this this is a ragtag group of people who have this incredible task. And the truth is they didn't have the resources that Solomon had when he built the temple. They didn't have that kind of resource. They didn't have all the ability, all that was available before. They are rebuilding the great Solomon's temple, the famous symbol of power and glory from the golden age of Israel's kingship and worship. There is just no way that they will be able to build something close to that. And yet God says, what I will do through you will be greater than that. In fact, he says, his glory will be more than before. These people are trying to rebuild their lives and determine where God is in the midst of it, just like most of us. They have memories of a glorious past. Like I said earlier, the good old days. Whether it's in our personal lives, our family lives, our congregational life, our country, the good old days. But that glorious past alone will not sustain us in the present, nor can we expect that it will be replicated in the future. Because God's not like that. The truth is from the past that carries into the present and pulls us into the future, what is the truth we need? It's simply this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thanks be to God. With all the shifting sand, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the same God who is this God. This is that same God. Forget the former things, Isaiah says. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? That new thing may not be as we think it should be, but the Redeemer's heart is to take even the worst of things and redeem them. And maybe even use them in ways that we just don't see. And Haggai teaches us that God does not always, and I think I would change that too, most often does not operate the way we think. Isaiah 55, his his ways are higher than my ways. God often operates in ways we do not think. And that's what's so difficult sometimes and also so glorious about living for him. Because he does things like this. He, He takes our disappointments and maybe he uses them in the life of another. Maybe his redemption isn't about making me feel good. Maybe it's about someone else. He he may use the disappointments in my life not to ease my pain, but to build my character. He may use the disappointments in my life not for me to get what I want, but to deepen my relationships. Or perhaps, perhaps, we may never see how he uses them. But does that change his character? The God who's the God who redeems all things? God will redeem that which we gift him, whether we see it or not. Remember our friend Job. And in Job 19 we read, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Those words from Job, They fill songs we sing, they sound nice, they make great little plaques to hang on our wall, but those words were spoken not at the end of the book of Job, but right in the middle of it. They were spoken long before any of this made sense to Job. They were spoken long before the disappointment of a child who is lost, children who's lost. Long before the failure of his business, the strain in his marriage, or the misunderstanding in his friendships ever made sense, and all of that's in the book of Job. But that's not what he stared at, it's not what he faced That was the difference maker. It was his faith in God as his redeemer that carried him through and brought him to a new day, though he did not see it in front of him. And what I learned from Haggai and Job and Isaiah and all these we've looked at, what I've learned and what I'm learning and what we can learn is that the disappointments of life can be used by the redeeming God. They drive me to seek him. They reduce my faith to nothing but him. They act as a filter, helping me rediscover my love affair with him. And when all I have is God in Christ, when that's all I have, I have enough. We have enough. When that's all we have. And that's not, that's not, even, that's not a statement about emotion. That's not a statement about circumstances. That's a statement of reality. Reality. When all we have is him, we have enough. Because he's the God who's present where we don't expect him to be. He's the God who redeems what we don't even think might be redeemable. And he's the God of enough. But there's one more lesson in all of this. And it's the lesson of the table that we're going to gather around in a moment. It is the pathway, actually, to the encounter with the true Christ. Make sure you don't miss these words today. Go back in your Bible later to Haggai chapter 2 and make sure you don't miss the true picture of these words and this table. Haggai 2.9 says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant Peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Remember, the new temple they now see does not even compare to what was before and never eventually compared. But the new thing of God, the most glorious thing, may not appear glorious to the world or even to us. And that's a critical lesson for us personally. Personally. It's a critical lesson to the church in this day, to our country. It's a critical lesson. We are constantly imagining God's new thing is bigger and better and shinier and more attractive and more impressive and powerful. But let's never forget that God's greatest demonstration of his glory the greatest demonstration of the glory of God in all of history was described this way. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. The greatest glory in all of history is Jesus there described on the cross as not anything we'd want to have in our lives. And what about those who have the guts and the gall to follow this Savior? How are they described? How is God's greatest demonstration of glory in the lives of people follow Jesus how are they described well Paul describes us brothers and sisters think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth but God chose the foolish things of the world I don't know that I like being called a foolish thing wow. So what we learn from Haggai is a broken grace. The place where our brokenness becomes God's healing, where the weakness becomes God's strength, where the humbleness becomes God's glory, where our sinful lives are transformed into lives of holy love. And that is the timeless lesson of this table that Jesus Christ gave his life for us to take us who by all appearances could never be what God wants us to be. And by forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us of our self-righteousness and selfishness, we can become transformed people. broken grace but grace for our brokenness thanks be to God so that's the lesson from this little prophet who stared at his world and said God is still working Stare at your reality today. Stare at it. Look at it. And remember, God is still working. I'm going to ask our pastors to come as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today. We have three stations today. And we're going to invite you to come to the front our pastors will distribute to you the elements, each one of us. And so when you come, um, you can, we'll hand you the cup and you can hold your hands out. Um, and we'll place the communion bread in your hands. We have um, um, gluten-free communion to my left, your right, if you need that today. But today we, as the people of God, come to the god who meets us wherever you are right now wherever i am meets us and redeems all things and the cross teaches us that That as we look at the worst thing in history it was the most glorious thing in history and that's our god that's our god thanks be to god